Anybody have a blessing this morning? Everybody awake? Okay, we got a couple blessings. What's your name first? Jeffrey. Jeffrey, what, what's your blessing? I woke up this morning. You woke up. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That is a blessing. That's good. All right, someone else's hand I saw. Your name and your blessing. My name is Michael. I woke up. And what? Wow. <laughs> Are you all from the same youth group? No. Same church? No? Okay. Same church. Never met him in your life. Well, you both woke up. Anybody else have a blessing this morning? Anyone else wake up? Okay, we got one. What's your name and your blessing? Okay. Over there, we've had a couple of youth conferences, different things. Nothing near this scale. Yeah. And so it's been a huge blessing just coming here and seeing that there are not just a few. Amen. But a lot of other teens that are ready to serve. Amen. That are looking to seek and serve God with their lives. Praise the Lord. That is a huge blessing. Is your first time here? Man, praise the Lord. Well, if it's your first, second, or third, fourth, well, I guess you all are college and career, right? Have you all been here before? Some, some, yes. First time, raise your hand. Wow, we got a good crew of first time. Praise the Lord. Well, we're glad you're here. And you've attended before? Man, all the same people just raise their hand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. All right, all right. So we are super glad you're here, and it is a blessing. And even uh, we were, I was just thinking last night, the message last night, uh, you 10, 15 years ago wouldn't think a message like that would be too relevant. But I think you all know working, if you're working in a secular work field right now, just being faithful to church, trying to be a blessing in your church, you know the battles that are going on in culture. They're real, and uh, you're, you run into them every day. And so praise the Lord for preaching like that last night. Glad for that. Anybody else have a blessing this morning? And he's glad he woke up too, so praise the Lord for that. <laughs> Anybody else have a blessing this morning they want to share? Go ahead. Caldwin, right? Yeah. Got it. Yeah, amen. It is a blessing. You don't feel like you got to be so on guard when you get around brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a blessing. Your name and a blessing. Amen. Good food too, right? Not as good as a youth worker's food. So, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're blessed. Yeah, breakfast is good. Breakfast is good. Lunch will be good. Dinner will be good. It'll all be good. Yeah. Anybody else have something on their heart they want to share? I do have a blessing. Uh, as Brother Caleb mentioned, we just had our fourth kiddo. He's a week and a half old. So he was born on July 22nd. And uh, we're super thankful for that. And it is a blessing this morning. He was just being super sweet. And he was wide awake. But uh, he let us sleep last night. That was a blessing. So he slept for four hours. So praise God for that. <laughs> But uh, I am super thankful. We have four kiddos. Life's crazy. I might share a little story here in a second about one of our kiddos. And uh, we're, we're just super thankful to be here. I better get my phone out. Next service is at 11? Someone's like, no. <laughs> yes, so the next service, I believe, is at 11. So I just want to make sure we get out on time. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter number 13. 1 Kings 13. You know, I think probably most would be accustomed to, and if you're not, that's fine. But uh, if you have your Bible, would you stand? want to honor God's Word. And I think I was talking with, uh, actually, Caldwin last night. We were talking about Nehemiah and Ezra. They stood for like 10 hours while they read the Bible. Y'all up for that? Amen. The awkward laughter, <laughs> man. <laughs> I don't, I'm not ready for that, I'll be honest, all right? <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 13, it won't take 10 hours to read this chapter. I do want to read the whole chapter. Though. I want us to kind of get, uh, get the flow of what the author's trying to say here. And so we're going to read through the chapter. I really, really want you to engage with the passage as we read it. I want you to think about what's happening. Think about the characters. I'm going to ask some questions here in a little bit. So be ready to answer. Y'all are kind of awake this morning. Praise the Lord. Anybody drink coffee in here? We got a few people. Wow, not as many as I thought. A bunch of coffee haters, okay? <laughs> Are you at least awake if you didn't drink coffee? Yeah, yeah? Okay, good. That's a blessing. So that's what we want this morning. Uh, 1 Kings 13, we're actually going to back up one verse into chapter number 12. So we're going to read verse number 33. It's going to kind of set the stage for us in chapter 13. Uh, actually, we'll back up to verse 32. So 1 Kings 12, verse 32, and then we're going to read into chapter number 13 and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Verse 32, And Jeroboam ordained a feast 
in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. Now, is that a good thing right there? Is that a good thing? He's sacrificing unto what? The calves. Does it say sacrificing unto the Lord? Okay. Okay. So not a great start. All right. So let's keep reading. So he, he did that in Bethel. He made a place in Bethel, the priests of the high place, uh, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he offered upon the altar, which he had made in Bethel, the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own what? His own heart. He ordained a feast unto the children of Israel and offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Now, this is a little bit more background. I don't want to have to deal with during the preaching, so I'll just mention it now. That Jeroboam, he is now the king over uh, several of the tribes of Israel. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is the king over Judah. Okay? So they, the, the tribes were split, and Jeroboam was scared that if he went back to Judah to offer sacrifice, that he's going to lose the, all the kingdoms that God had given him. So instead of going back and doing proper worship, he begins, as we said, uh, as the passage says, he devises in his own heart and ordains a feast, and uh, he begins to do that. And so we're about to run right into chapter 13. I, want, I wanted to read those two verses to kind of set the stage. This is all kind of coinciding together. So he's setting up these new, uh, this new altar, this new way of worshiping God in Bethel in verse 1 of chapter 13. And behold, so the thought continues. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So he's getting ready to burn incense upon the altar. Verse number two, the man of God, and he cried against the altar of the word uh, of the Lord, in the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burnt incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign in the, sa the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. Come, and it came to pass, the king hears these things, Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand. He stretches forth his hand and he points at him and he says, lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. So he couldn't even return his hand back to his side. Which is pretty amazing. The altar also was rent. It, 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 this is all taking place all at the same time. His hand gets withered and dried up and at the same time he tries to pronounce judgment upon the man of God, the altar breaks in half. It's rented and ashes are poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, entreat now the face of... I mean, could you imagine? He just wants to kill this guy and all of a sudden he's like, hey, pray for me, man. Pray for my hand that it can be fixed, right? So that's what he says. Pray. He says, go, go, go before the face of the Lord and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And this is crazy. The man of God literally does that. He prays. And his hand was restored and became as it was before. And the king said unto him, unto the man of God, Come, come with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto, unto the king. Now listen, the man of God has been saying what God has wanted him to say this entire time, right? He spoke against the altar. He pronounced judgment against Jeroboam. That would come in the future. The altar breaks. Jeroboam's hand gets dried up. And now he's again speaking to the king. And look at what he says. The king's like, hey, come back with me to my house. Man, God said unto the king, if thou wilt give me half thine house, if thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, 
eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So he's obedient to God. We're going to keep reading. So I want you to get plugged in because we're going to be looking at this nameless man of God. He's not named in here other than the phrase, the man of God. Look at verse number 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel. So we get introduced to this old guy, all right? And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done, which uh, done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. So apparently his sons are hanging out at this new worship service, right? Hanging out at this place where they shouldn't have been. Their father says unto them, Why, what, what way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, okay, saddle me the ass. So the, they saddled in the ass and they rode thereon and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. So he's now confronted again with this idea of coming back home with this person and eating and drinking and going the same way that he came before. But look at what the man of God says. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. So he's faithfully communicating what God told him to, right? Okay, look at this next verse. Uh, well, verse 17 says, For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, thou shalt not eat nor drink. So he communicates that again to this time the old prophet. Verse 18. Now look at this. He said unto him, I am a prophet also, as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Now, what does this last phrase say? But he, but he lied unto him. But he lied unto him. So he went back. Now you're thinking, at this point in the story, if you're not familiar with this chapter, what's about to take place is going to seem absolutely bonkers to you. I'm serious. Let, well, I mean, if you don't believe me, let's keep reading. It, it, it says, so he goes back with him. He goes and eats. There's no protest. There's nothing. He goes back and eats with them. And it came to pass as they sat at table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet. So now, at first he lies and says, this is what God told me to tell you. Now God actually speaks to the old prophet and through the old prophet speaks to the nameless man of God. And look at what he says. Verse 21, and he cried unto the man of God that came. Kind of like how the man of God cried unto the altar. Now this old prophet cries unto the man of God and says, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and hast not kept the commandment of the, uh, which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunken water in, this play, in the place of which the Lord did say uh, to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. You're going to die. Because you disobeyed God. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk. I mean, he doesn't even protest. The passage, he doesn't even protest. He doesn't turn to God. He doesn't do anything. Literally, he finishes eating, finishes drinking, saddles the ass for, to wit the, uh, for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, this is the part that's bonkers. Okay, you ready? The passage points this out. A lion meets him in the way says and when he was gone a lion met him by the way and slew him and his carcass was cast in the way and the ass stood by it the lion also stood by the carcass now if you don't think that's absolutely crazy I don't know what planet you're living on okay <laughs> literally the lion kills animals and eats them for a living I mean that's like it's daily job right it goes out kills and eats it kills this man of God and his body's laying there and the ass, the donkey, is standing there and so is the lion. They're just standing there in the, in the road. <laughs> the passage literally points out people walk by and are, and are literally doing what probably we would do too and we're like, what is, what? They don't even know what's going on, right? So let's, let's look at the passage and look at what, how it's described as the people would walk by. Literally, verse 25, it, it, again, 
bonkers, okay? Verse 26, when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake unto him. And he spake to his sons, saying, Saddle me the ass, and they saddled him. And he, and he went and found uh, his carcass, casting away, and the ass and the lion standing there. All this time, they're standing there, not devouring the body, and the lion's not devouring the donkey, okay? This entire time, they're just standing there while he's preparing his journey over to where this man of God is, this nameless man of God. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the ass and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it came to pass after he had buried him, and he spake unto his son, saying, When I am dead, bury me in the sepulcher wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. I think he realized God's hand was on the man of God. And there's some other reasons, too, and I'm going to point out here in a second. The passage just doesn't really tell us. It doesn't tell us. But verse 32, it kind of begins to jump back. The rest of this passage jumps back to Jeroboam. So you had Jeroboam at the beginning with the altar, his withered hand. God restores it. The pronouncement of judgment. And then you have this weird section in the middle between this old prophet and this nameless man of God. And then you have the end here that we're about to read with Jeroboam again. So let's read the last few chapters. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel, against the all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, shall surely come to pass. Judgment will come just like the man of God preached it would against the altar. Verse 33. For, this, for after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made... He returned not from his evil way. He literally had his hand healed. God had spoken and made it clear, and he would not return from his evil way. But made again of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. God had set aside the Levites to be priests, all right? And he's making people, all sorts of people priests. He's making people who are unqualified do things that only qualified people should do. And what happens is whosoever would, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. That's pretty serious, right? Well, let's pray. I want to I wanna preach this morning uh, a message I entitled, The Cost of Believing a Lie. The Cost of Believing a Lie. Now, I have a, like a, I guess a subtitle if you want to call it, but I, I want to introduce that to you as we get through this passage because it's really going to be the main thought that we're going to address this morning. This chapter has some weird elements to it, does it not? Yeah. I mean, if you're paying attention, this chapter kind of has some weird elements. And, and I really, really want to encourage us this morning that there is a cost to believing a lie. And we're going to look at that this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, this morning that you would help us. Lord, I am so thankful for a youth conference like that that would speak to teenagers through the preaching, Lord. You desire to change people's lives and you want to have a personal relationship with people. And no doubt the group that we have this morning, sometimes, Lord, in churches could be forgotten. Sometimes this group, Lord, could uh, sneak into the shadows and do their own thing. And Lord, the temptation this morning is, is for this age group or this college and career age group to the single group here to, to truly, Lord, given to believing lies that aren't true. And this morning, I, I just want to look at this passage where I pray you help us. I pray you help us understand the passage. I pray you help us to apply the passage. I pray, Lord, it would be a help to us and equip us, Lord, to serve you and would remind us, Lord, of your word and how it comes to pass, Lord. You're faithful to fulfill your word. And I pray you speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for standing. You may be seated. <coughs> Normal life in the 21st century, it can kind of seem a little bit overwhelming at times. There's this constant stream of messages that come through us, through our phone, through the TV, through the internet, not to mention all the messages that we receive and we don't even notice that we receive them. All sorts of messages. We don't even notice them. 
the way of life that we take for granted with all of the assumptions, the beliefs, and the practices that we don't even examine. Do you get what I'm trying to say? That we kind of get bombarded in life and sometimes we don't even think about what's being presented to us. We just live. Does that make sense? Anybody busy working a job? Anybody work a job in here? Okay, there we go. Get plugged in this morning. You get busy working a job, right? And sometimes we get so busy working a job trying to keep our head above water trying to serve in the church, if you got a heart for that, which you're here this morning. So, I mean, clearly you got a heart for the teens, at least, and you desire that, but we get bombarded. And sometimes we don't even examine the belief system and the pressure from the world. We don't examine those things, and they just bombard us over and over and over again. What if we are living according to the myths of our culture without even questioning them without even realizing them what if we're failing or what what if we what if we are falling for false stories not because they're in our history books but because they're in our everyday habits i want you to think about that they could be in our everyday habits you know sometimes we can't even see through them sometimes we don't even realize that they're there I want to read a couple more quotes. I'm, I'm quoting a gentleman, and, and as he's addressing this, and it's convicting. We're in the midst of a moral revolution, he says, and the world is changing around us. It would be easy to give into despair and defensiveness, to lash out against others in anger and hatred, as if unbelievers are our enemies, but that won't do. Our battle is against the principalities and powers, not the neighbor next door who needs Jesus just as much as we do. So the question is, how how can we resist the false stories that are swirling around us in our world today? And the guy, he he writes this book to address that. He, he, He addresses this question, how does the gospel confront the myth that culture feeds us every single day? Every single day. When someone believes a myth about the world, he says it's usually because deep down they want something in that story to be true. Ideas, he quotes another person, ideas, they don't catch on just because some scientist makes a discovery. They gain popularity because this is what a lot of people want to believe. They want to believe. The question is, we must ask, is why? And sometimes we don't even realize that the myths that are being fed to us, the lies that are being fed to us, we don't realize how they're changing us. Yeah. The myth that they believe may be bad, but the longing is just so good for that myth, that lie. And so uh, he he goes on to say, we must challenge what is bad about the myth. The gospel doesn't simply affirm the deepest longings of humanity. It also challenges and reshapes those longings. And in doing so, it exposes the lie that's fed to us by culture. The gospel does that. The word of God does that, changes us. And as we're changed, we recognize the lie that's been fed to us. And if we don't expose the lie at the heart of the stories in our society, we imply that the Christian view of the world is just one option among many. I want you to think about that. I'm going to read that one more time. I want you to think about that. And we're going to kind of turn to the passage here. If we do not expose the lies at the heart of the stories in our society, we imply that the Christian worldview is just one option among many. It's convicting. He goes on to say, and I love this next sentence, no, Christianity must offer truth, a message that exposes false beliefs and practices. Man, it's convicting. He goes on to say, I'm not going to continue to read. There are other good quotes from him that would be helpful, but but, but, but really what I'm trying to do is really set the stage this morning that The temptation is out there to not even realize when we're buying into a lie that's been fed to us. We, our detectors aren't up, our discernment's not up, we become lax because we're comfortable, whatever the reason might be, and all of a sudden, the lie that's fed to us becomes a part of our daily life. And so we're left with Christians who are, well, we're going to find out what happens in this passage, 
They're living out the cost of believing a lie. Yeah, that's right. And so this morning we turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. And, and it's convicting because you might come across this passage. Have you ever had something happen to you and you just, you look at the situation, whatever it is, and you're just like, why? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like my wife sent me a video of my daughter recently and uh, it was a couple weeks ago. And we're staying on campus actually right back here for now until we move into our house. And uh, it's just this video of her looking out from the front porch. And right back here, actually, after you can check out the window, but there's a deep, steep hill that goes downhill to the house where we're staying at. And then there's like a little parking lot that attaches to it, and there's a little hill there too. And so the, the camera's just like facing out, um, looking at that. And there's nothing going on. And I'm kind of like, okay, was this an accidental send? I mean, did she just send me a video for no reason? And then all of a sudden, I have a six-year-old, my oldest. Well, she's about to be six in November. Her name's Clara. All of a sudden, so have you ever seen one of those little walker things that helps kids who are learning how to walk, walk? You know what I'm talking about? It's got like the, this particular one that was given to us. It has like a little flat thing on the top. So it almost looks like a cart, like a shopping cart, but it's, there's a top to it. Yeah. So I look in the video, literally, it's, there's nothing going on in the video. And all of a sudden from the right side of the screen, my daughter sitting on top of this thing is rolling down the hill. <laughs> Into the grass, into the grass, unaware of the fact that my wife is videotaping her. She pulls it back out of the grass and pushes it back up the hill, <laughs> turns around, sits on it, and kicks her feet, and goes back down the hill. <laughs> and literally, the question came out like, what in the world is going on in this video? Well, you might, okay, so that's obviously a silly illustration, right? But there are things that happen all the time, and you're, you just question, like, why? Like, literally, that's what I thought. That was the thing that came to my mind. As you're reading, okay, we're about to take a serious turn, okay? So uh, laughter, having fun, all right? We're about to take a serious turn to this passage, okay? Can you get plugged in? You guys ready? You might come in and read this passage, and so many questions might come to your mind. There are a lot of questions that came to my mind, and if you were paying attention, it might come to your mind. I mean, you might immediately start thinking uh, all, all sorts of questions. You, you might uh, instantaneously think, why was the man of God to refuse any hospitality? I mean, as you think through the passage, why did God tell him not to go eat and drink and stay and hang out or go back the way he was supposed to? We might ask why. What were the sons of this old prophet doing at this odd service? Why were they there? Were they in sympathy with this king? Were they participating in this cult? Were they just curious? Why was the man of God sitting under some tree at the north border? Why, why was he hanging out there? Were we wrong to assume he was supposed to hurry up and get back and go a different way? What are we to make of this old prophet? I, I, did you all, when we read this and he directly lies to the man of God, did it not come to your mind? Why did he do that? I mean, you could ask that question, right? Why did he lie to this Nameless man of God. Why would he do that? Why is he so weird? Why would he lie? I mean, he's a, he's a weird character, right? Why did he lie to the man of God? What could be, what was his motive? Were you not thinking about, why would he do that? I mean, these are questions that could come to mind. Was he guilt-ridden because he knew what he was doing under Jeroboam's leadership? To be honest, though, the text doesn't give us any clues. Did you read it? Did it tell us why? No. Didn't tell us why he lied. It didn't tell us why he did what he did. Why does the man of God have clear orders to go back? Or why, why does the man of God, though having clear orders, go back with the old prophet and not even question? I mean, it's like, oh yeah, God told you. I mean, he goes, no, I can't go back with you. Oh, God told you? Sure, yeah, I'll go with you. It's like he doesn't even question it. Why? I mean, we could ask these questions of this passage. Why? He, he's not engage in any debate. He doesn't register any suspicion. How is it that right after lying, God actually speaks to the old prophet? Why would God do that? Why would God do that? How is it that the true word of God comes to this prophet who just lied? Why, why is there no protest by the man of God? Why no sudden anger? Why does he not verbally abuse the old prophet? I mean, like, he was just trying to do what was right, and he was just trusting and God spoke to him, and yet there's no protest. And this maybe probably breaks my heart the most as you consider this passage. And I hope if you're a caring person, you might think this in your mind. And really, this is going to help us set the stage. Not only why was he so mute, why, why, why did the old prophet 
not get pushed back. But really, why was the man of God's punishment so severe? Anybody else think that when you were reading? Anybody else think he was just trying to do what God wanted and this guy lies to him and he just listens to him and literally he gets killed? And I wrote this down and it's convicting. Is this a crude, insensitive God who violates our ideas of justice? You could come away from this passage thinking God does not care. He just exacts judgment wherever he wants. You might think he's, he, 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 he's not a God of justice. And all of these questions can bubble up as you read this passage. And maybe they would. But, but what's interesting is that while we are totally clueless to the answers of these questions, there's a couple things we are clear about in this passage. And that's really what I want you to consider this morning. We might be clueless about many of these details, but we are clear on a couple matters. Listen to this, nine times in this passage, nine times, nine times either the writer or one of the characters refers to a, a phrase, the word of the Lord. Nine times throughout this passage, verse 1, 2, 5, 9, 17, 18, 20, 26, 32, all of these are phrases in some way that reference the word of the Lord. So the phrase may refer to either the orders given to the man of God or maybe the content of his preaching or the alleged word by the old prophet. They are added to when it says that the Lord spoke to what he had commanded. This idea of thus saith the Lord, as you begin to read, all of those questions that we could ask, they aren't answered in the passage. But one thing is for sure is that God said to say something. Thus saith the Lord. And that's what really rises up in this passage. It kind of bubbles up to the top, so to speak. The word of the Lord is truly the theme of this story. And this is, this is where I really want to challenge you because God's word is the theme throughout this chapter. His word spoken. And if we, if we keep it as our direction, our compass, as we kind of traverse through this, Brother Zach and I were just talking, like if we look at this chapter as a map, and we keep the word of the Lord as our compass, we won't get sidetracked by all these questions that aren't answered in the passage. And we might be tempted to get distracted to do that. Do y'all, does that make sense this morning? Everybody's thinking caps on. Yeah. The passage doesn't answer those questions and it doesn't answer them on purpose because it does want us to look at what God has said. Okay, so if we keep that before us as we journey through the chapter, we get a sense of what God's actually trying to say to us. We won't go astray no matter how many unanswered questions there may be so then we come to the chapter and so we're finally here we come to this chapter and um, in, instantaneously this chapter Jeroboam's has this service going on and could you imagine some random in your mind some random yahoo as you're leading this service I mean he's literally about to offer incense upon the altar and this nameless man of God comes flying in out of nowhere right to the altar and just starts flinging it down and the, and the, the, the guy leading the service Jeroboam is probably thinking what on planet earth is happening because the nameless man of God doesn't even look at Jeroboam. The Bible points it out very specifically that he was not talking to the king. Someone tell me, what was he talking to? The altar. The altar. All right, real quick, time out. What, we're, we're in a particular genre of literature in the Bible. I'm going to ask a question. Does anybody know what kind of genre of literature this might be? Is this poetry? Okay. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark? Okay, we got a hand in the back. Narrative. It is narrative. Great job. Okay, this is narrative. When you read a narrative story, a book particularly, or in the Bible, there's ways in which you understand the narrative, and there's particular elements of narratives that are really important. So first things first. What are the four major characters in this chapter? Okay, Colin? Okay, the old prophet. That's one. Got a hand back here. No? Right here? The nameless man of God. That's two. Okay? King Jeroboam. That's three. Anybody know who the fourth character is? We're going to get someone else. Uh, The face? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So, yes, but we're looking for another character. So, another character. God, yes. Everyone's like, I don't know if I should say God. I mean, you know, he's in the passage. Yeah, God. God's a, God's a fourth character. Now, what's ironic is that what God has said is really what's represented in this passage, right? But ultimately, those are the four major characters in this chapter. Now, with narrative, 
you're looking at plot, you're looking at the climax, you're looking at all those different things, right? Everyone's like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Just believe it for now, okay? Come to, come to school here. We have a genre of literature class that will help you, help you learn that. No, I'm kidding. Only come if God wants you to. So moving on. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, <laughs> we don't want you if God doesn't want you here, okay? <laughs> but we do love you. Two things can be true at once, right? Uh, oh, man. Okay. We're looking at this chapter, and you see these major characters. Now, one of the characters in particular excluding God, one of the characters is throughout the entire chapter. Which of them is it? Throughout all of it. The man of God. The man of God. He's in the interaction with Jeroboam at the beginning. He's in the interaction with the, uh, the, the old prophet, and it concludes with his pronouncement in the end against Jeroboam. He's throughout the entire chapter. So we're dealing with really this character who has these different interactions with different people. The first person that he interacts with is King Jeroboam. And what I love about this is you, you might look at it and, and Jeroboam probably thought this guy was absolutely crazy. And because he, he comes running up, he doesn't address him at all. But in reality, the message that the man of God preaches to Jeroboam is a message of mercy. Now, I don't have time to, to go through all of that because I want to get to the main point. I want to get to some application this morning. It may have not seemed like mercy to Jeroboam. But God was offering him an opportunity to turn from his ways. He really was. Jeroboam, probably fuming, tries to kill him. His hand gets crippled. Then he turns and asks him to pray for him. He's like, I'm going to kill you. I can't get my hand back. Can you pray for me? It's like, what? <laughs> the man of God does. It's, it is a show of the mercy of God that in Jeroboam's disobedience, God would still send a man to preach the word to him. I mean, think about that. You know right now what you're struggling with in your life. You know the sins you're struggling with. If you don't, take a minute to look in the mirror. All right? Don't compare yourself to your coworker who's not saved. Look at yourself the way God looks at you. You know, you know what you're struggling with. It is the mercy of God that you're here this week hearing preaching. That's right. Every time you go to church and your pastor stands up to preach, every time you go, up to, go to church and your Sunday school teacher teaches you, it is God's mercy to confront you challenge you, encourage you, all of those things. It is the mercy of God. And it was in Jeroboam's life. He understood it and he asked for prayer. <laughs> There's much more to that, but I, I do want to say a couple of things. The true, this, this man of God, he was then offered an opportunity to go back with Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam could be manipulating him. He's maybe trying to get on God's good side. There's, there's not, this not, again, the question of why is not answered. The fact is, he invited him back to his house to eat and drink. And the man of God says, no, 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 I can't go. Whether it was manipulation, whether it was some sort of smooth tactic, he immediately gets repudiated. He gets rebuffed. He gets confronted back by the man of God. Leaving lunchless was really kind of like excommunication. In the Jewish culture, if you were invited over for a meal, it was almost like you were required to go. And there's more into that we're not going to go into, but you should look up Jewish, Jewish culture. It, for him to tell Jeroboam, I'm not coming, was a pretty big deal in Jewish culture. The true, this true man of God was to have no dealings and enjoy no fellowship, carry on no relations with this apostate regimen. They're broken away from Israel, doing, worshiping God in their own way, which God told them not to. He didn't want to have any, God didn't want him to have any dealings with that. God hasn't changed. He doesn't hesitate to come to our lives and confront us when we're going astray. When we're, when we're in the middle of our idolatry. He, matter of fact, he comes right into our idolatry, much like the man of God, and breaks it right in half in front of us. He does. He'll throw roadblocks into your path. He sometimes sends reasonably obnoxious college and career directors to confront you. <laughs> yeah. But it's good news because that means God loves you. Yes, that's right. And he, and he wants you to return. He wants you to repent and turn back to him. Right. Now, the problem with Jeroboam is that he eventually suffers the cost of believing the lie that God's judgment wouldn't come to pass. The problem is he saw it right before him. This nameless man of God meets the old prophet who had aligned himself with Jeroboam and learns the cost of believing lies. So not only did Jeroboam will eventually, he's going to eventually reap 
what he had sown. He's going to pay the cost of believing a lie that God's judgment wouldn't come to pass. But then we find out in this passage through the word of God that the nameless man of God who had been so faithful to God's word, the moment that he forsook it, the moment he forsook it, he, he realizes what the cost is. So clearly he knew what God's orders were. He tells the old prophet those orders. And what's interesting is we have no, the, literally the writer does not, he has no inclination to explain why all these things were happening. We just know that the man of God followed the old prophet back to his house to eat and drink. And it breaks my heart when I read that part because I know it's about to come. Now, I want you to listen to this statement because this is really the heart of the message. This nameless man of God, what he did was he, he swallowed, he accepted, he believed a counter-revelation claim in opposition to what was already clear yes. and what had already been received. Y'all got your thinking caps on this morning? Yeah. It was said to be from God, but it was counter to what had already been clearly communicated to him, yeah. the word of God. Yeah. He swallowed it without even questioning it. He, he, he swallowed it without even pushing back. And this is the essential problem. This is the recipe for disaster that First Kings teaches that the given word of God is adequate for his servants. It is adequate. We don't need to believe a counter revelation claim. It is adequate. And as a matter of fact, not only do we not need to believe it, it's not safe for us to receive anything beyond what God has already said in his word. Right. It's not safe. And this passage is pointing that out. The old prophet was a liar. God would deal with him and it wasn't right for him to lie. And yet it wasn't right for the nameless man of God to forsake what God already told him. There's kind of some terror here. I'm going to take a time out and address if there are any youth, uh, college and career workers in here, maybe someone who teaches maybe someone who might want to teach and aspires to. Listen to this. The text warns us that the ministry of proclaiming the word does not exempt us from the duty of obeying it. Okay? If you have the opportunity to teach a class, a Sunday school class, a kids' children's class, maybe at VBS, just remember, you have the opportunity to teach what God says that doesn't exempt you from living it out. That's right. There's so many examples of that in the Bible. Sometimes we have the courage to face major crises. He did when he confronted Jeroboam, but really he lacked sense for the subtle dilemmas of life. The little things that he didn't see coming are what got him. That leads us really to the principle, and we're going to kind of circle this and, and try to land the plane here. The reason why this was so important and why the consequences were so severe is that he represented God to both the people and to the king. And that when he disobeys God, he contradicts the obedience that he displayed previously. He, he contradicts the very word of God. And it would subvert his character and his message. And ultimately, it leads people to question God. God told him this over here, but why is he doing this here? It's contradictory. It's hypocritical. Do you get what I'm trying to say? When you say one thing that God tells you want to say, but then you live a different way. Do you get what I'm trying to say this morning? Okay, this leads us to the principle that this passage is communicating. Remember, the cost of believing a lie, and it's this, to forsake God's word is to embrace God's judgment. Let that settle for just a second. To forsake God's word is to embrace, embrace God's judgment. I mean, we know this to be true. If you share the gospel with anybody, the word of God says this is how you are to be saved. If they forsake that, if someone turns away from what God says and doesn't trust in Jesus, eternally speaking, is there not judgment? Yeah. But I think we also know this to be true in our Christian life. And it really should grip our hearts that as we are exposed to God's word and as he gives us God's word, matter of fact, he does over and over and over again. The moment that we set it down to believe some other lie, be careful because guess what? This passage is teaching us you got to be careful when you forsake God's word. God's judgment's coming. Right. It came immediately in the man of God's life, but for the old prophet, it would take some time. For Jeroboam, matter of fact, the prophecy of Josiah, I think it's like three or 400 years later, Josiah is born under, the, under David's lineage. 
I mean, he prophesies of something way down the line. He says, this is what's going to happen. And so it takes a long time. But guess what? Regardless, God's judgment comes to pass. Right. And if you don't live according to God's word, yeah. you're tempting God. Yeah. And you're at a place in your life where you might be under his judgment. And it might not come immediately. And that's where we get confused, right? We're like, ah, it's not coming right now. Well, the problem for us is not that we're not exposed to God's word. We're not exposed to his truth. The problem is that what we do when we're fed the lie from culture. Yeah. When you're scrolling through your phone. Now, I have a bunch of application. I think and we're really going to try to wrap up and, and be done. I want to ask some questions this morning. Do, do we simply just swallow counter-revelation claims in opposition to what's clearly been defined in God's Word? I mean, last night we heard the lie about gender, right? right. Were you there? I mean, there is a lie that's being spread about gender, and yet God is very clear. Yep, that's right. And there is an end to that if you walk down that road and forsake God's word. Right. And you might think, well, I'm an adult. I'm not a, in the youth group anymore. So it really doesn't matter how I develop a relationship with this girl or with this guy. It doesn't really matter. I mean, sure, she's not saved, but she's beautiful. Yeah, even the door agreed. <laughs> I mean, that was like a mic drop, right? <laughs> a door slam. Sure, he doesn't attend church, but he loves me. Be careful, because if you forsake what God says about relationships, you invite judgment into your life. And there's consequences to believing that lie. I mean, you can go through, you want to talk about entertainment. All right, for a second. How many of you all have a smartphone? Raise your hand if you got a smartphone. Come on. Every person in here has a smartphone. If you don't, and I didn't see your hand not being raised, I apologize, but it looked like every single person in here. You know what this is? A constant lie feeder. I mean, seriously, in your pocket at all times, you have a world that revol revolves around one person. Who? You. I mean, you can customize your picture. You can customize your apps. You can set up everything. And in your pocket at all times, it's like, I just need to pull this out and realize I am the center of this world. That's a lie. Right. And you're like, it doesn't really matter what I watch on my phone or on my computer or at the movie theater. It doesn't really matter what content is fed into my heart. It doesn't matter that this, this girl on Instagram says I need to look like this. It doesn't matter. It's beautiful. It doesn't matter that this, this guy, I mean, he just lifts so much weight, you know. It's like I need to get swole you know it's like I've got to go to the gym and spend all my money and all my time over there but yeah so what it's hard to make it a visitation all right so what yeah you got to be healthy but if you believe the lie that you're supposed to be f more fit than you ought to be I mean come on her, her her podcast is about beauty I mean it's not that bad it's just the best makeup and hairstyle I'm not harming anyone when I endlessly scroll on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, and then you respond in ways that you shouldn't yeah, to right. people in your life. Yeah. There's a cost to believing those lies. Right. Right. And you might think, man, well, I can have this attitude. She deserved it. It was only a few sentences I posted on Facebook. I mean, come on. Not that big of a deal. She had it coming. He had it coming. Man kept pushing my buttons at work. He deserved it when I yelled at him. Does not God isn't God pretty clear about how our attitude should be to others? I mean, there's so many, there's ways that this principle applies. That if you submit to God's word, now listen, this is this is this is it, and we're gonna close. When the man of God proclaimed the word of God and lived it out, when he lived it out, the king could not even kill him. Do you not realize that there is safety in trusting God's word, believing it, and living it out in your life? You might say, well, it's hard to talk like this. It's hard to listen to this type of music. It's hard to watch these things when they're all talking about it. I want to join in on the conversation. I want to know that comedian. I want to know this podcast. I want to know that guy. I want to know. I want to be up to date on all these movies. And yet, you know in your soul the Holy Spirit convicts you that that rated R movie is not a movie you should be watching. Oh, but wait, I make money. It's my money. It's my time. I live in my own apartment. I mean, come on. Yeah. Right. You believe that lie. Yeah. 
You're stepping out from God's umbrella of protection and inviting His judgment into your life. There's safety when you obey God's Word and you trust it and you believe it and you live it out. And I, I realize that this group right here, you, you go to church and sometimes you can feel like nobody really cares about you. Now, I'm thankful for churches that have college and career directors that are working hard to love on the singles and you can, the, the young adults. There's so many different phrases. My wife and I were over the, the uh, singles class in Tampa. We had to call it that because it's not, it wasn't young adults because we had 18-year-olds and we also had 55-year-olds, all right? So, yeah, a big gap, right? We didn't have another teacher, all right? Come on. That's a big age range. But, I mean, seriously, sometimes you can feel like, man, every time that person tells me, I'm not complete without getting married. It's like, man, I just hate this single life. Man, I, I honestly was torn this week. And I still might change up what I'm going to preach tomorrow because you don't realize how much opportunity you have to serve the Lord right now as a single person. It literally grieves my heart because I just look back on my single life and I just remember times where I just wasted time. I had time. I had energy. I had, I mean, not a lot of money, but I had some money. <laughs> but I didn't have a family I had to take care of at the time. I didn't have to ask my wife. You know, I made a poor decision one time. I was like, hey, Sarah, uh, I'm on my way, and I, there's six guys coming over in about 30 minutes. Sorry. Not a good decision. Those are things you talk about, right? <laughs> but I just want you to know that this morning, you don't have to do that. You don't have to call someone and be like, hey, someone's coming over to the house. If you keep your house relatively clean, you can just invite them over. <laughs> but there's a lie that you could believe that your singleness is really working against you. First Corinthians 7 shuts that down. Man, there's so many ways that this applies. Believe God's word and find safety or forsake it and find his judgment. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the word. I thank you for how you speak to us, Lord. I just pray that this group in their daily lives would apply this truth, that they would f fulfill and be faithful to the word of God, that it meets our needs, their safety, and Lord, for those who've been forsaking it, for those who've been walking away from it, I pray you confront their heart. Judgment might not come immediately, Lord, but I do know if we forsake your word, there is judgment. And so I just pray you help us to be obedient to your word, to love you above all else, and not fall into the lies that this culture feeds us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.